Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Gilbert Verdian, CEO at Quant, which is dedicated to making blockchain work for banks, asset managers, insurers and technology vendors, chiefly by ensuring that blockchain protocols and traditional systems can interoperate successfully. Our topic today is an innovation that lies at the heart of that growing convergence between blockchain-based and traditional finance, namely stablecoins. Gilbert, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dominic. It's great to be here. Now, we see regulatory developments across the EU, the UK, Japan. We're seeing something very similar in uh, Singapore and Hong Kong as well uh, that suggests that central banks strongly favour banks as issuers of stablecoins rather than uh, non-banks. Do you think that is a sensible approach? Do you welcome it? Um, I think what we're seeing is uh, a reaction from different regulators in different jurisdictions to manage uh, risk in in the system. And and I think this is really caused by the recent events with um, contagion uh, risk, uh, with things such as FTX, such as Terra. Um, And what we're seeing is uh, different regulators, including the US now in, in the last couple of weeks, really stepping up their efforts to issue um, guidance to to banks when when they're dealing with stable coins and and um, you know those types of crypto assets and uh, issuers of those uh, who haven't registered correctly with with the different regulator to um, to a form of enforcement and I think um, that the reason behind this is is really um, in reality, preparing the financial system um, for regulated uh, institutions to issue new forms of money, which are programmable, um, and uh, in, you know leading to central bank currencies, uh, and being done by trusted and uh, you know insured uh, uh, issuers uh, rather than uh, private entities uh, without any consumer protection or, or risk. Uh, protection to to the end user and to businesses, um, and and we're seeing that that step up into these efforts uh, in in very recent times. I've used this term stablecoin as if it's very obvious what it is. It's just one single type of instrument. But in fact, there's an awful lot of variation in stablecoins. Not just the asset backed variety, not just bank issuers and non bank issuers, but algorithmic ones, crypto backed ones, and so on. But one uh, model which a number of banks have followed is this tokenized deposit model. We've seen the JP Morgan coin, we've seen Wells Fargo, and now we've seen two banks in Australia, uh, NAB and ANZ, uh, issue stable coins of that type. I'm not sure I'm allowed to call them stable coins. Perhaps they should just be called uh, tokenized um, deposits. What, what do you see as the differences between a tokenized deposit and a classic asset-backed, backed by money market instruments, essentially asset-backed stable coin? Um, I think what we're seeing is kind of a, a transition from stable coins um, in, in terms of the legacy thinking, and, and that was very associated with crypto, in, in what you mentioned in terms of algorithmic stable coins, um, and, and one of the larger ones, such as Tether, uh, which is some sort of backed stable coin without a, a clear order trail of what it's backed by. Um, and I think what we're moving towards is 
um, to, to the institutions uh, issuing stable coins that, that they don't see it as stable coins, but what they're doing is they're issuing uh, tokenized forms of money uh, and commercial bank money, which is most likely um, bank deposits. And, and so if, if you if you look at that, uh, it could be you know bank liabilities and, and bank deposits and, and, and commercial money. It's backed um, by real world cash. Um, it's regulated by regulators with the institution issuing it. Um, and, and there's a bit more trust in, in that system because it, it, it has the consumer protection, it has the, the right rigor and regulation behind it. Um, and being um, issued by uh, an institution, uh, business and consumers can, can use it in, in the same way as cash. And I think this is a, a precursor to, to central bank money where the same will happen with uh, a retail or even a wholesale CBDC. Um, where, where the central bank will be um, authorizing the issuance of these. And, and if they do it directly, the central bank will deposit the retail CBDC with that institution. Um, and then it's up to the institution to use it with their customers, consumer and business uh, within the financial system. So I, I think we should start thinking about it as, as smart money or, or programmable money backed by... Um, bank deposits um in 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 the real sense of, of the word okay so it's a starting point not an not an end state but one of the characteristics of that of that start point of these tokenized liabilities these tokenized deposits that you've referred to is at the moment they're usable only within the closed network of the bank itself on a in effect on a private permissioned blockchain network not a not a public one, and therefore it's restricted to transactions between existing clients of the bank. Although I did see that, uh, that JP Morgan is working with the Monetary Authority of Singapore on its coin being used on a public blockchain network. I don't think that experiment, the results of that experiment have not been published yet. So we have these tokenized liabilities usable within, uh, within, the, within the bank. Do you think, as I've just said at the outset there, that's just where we're beginning and we're going to end up uh with something very different with programmable commercial bank money yes i i believe so and and what we're seeing is the the initial steps of innovation um and uh, aligning to regulation by by each bank within their jurisdiction and that's why it's been a, a very limited closed set of participants to to make sure they get it right and regulators understand uh what is being done and and how it has the same controls uh, in terms of regulatory requirements in place. Um, and what will eventually happen is uh, similar to other payment systems, um, you know, not everyone will be using the same bank for every single transaction. Not everyone will be using uh, the, the same merchant for, for different types of e-commerce, for example. Um, all of these systems will need to be linked together and they need interoperability between them because customers will be banking with their preferred banks um, and they would like to be able to use the money in their bank account in terms of acceptance in in other areas outside of the bank. Um, so what we'll see is is a is a link up of of commercial bank um, deposits between the banks itself through some sort of interbank network, um, an existing one or a potentially new one. And then wider than that, we'll see in interlinking and interoperability between jurisdictions. Uh, within within one jurisdiction to another country for kind of global cross-border use cases where where money can roam between different systems um, and have the same 
uh, rigor and compliance with what regulators expect domestically and internationally. Uh, so it's quite an exciting evolution of where things are heading, um, um, but it has to start somewhere and, and that's where we are today. I'll come back to the point you, you raised, which is an important one about how stable coins relate to CBDCs. But before I do, can I ask you a, a very basic question, which is why are banks, and I, I, I gave a list there, there's several more initiatives, including a consortium one in the United States. Why are banks interested in issuing uh, these stable coins? Are they thinking of this in terms of a, a what I'd call a wholesale or institutional market they're going to service? Or do you think in the long term, as you've begun to begun to say, I think that this is actually a retail play. We're going to end up with interoperating private bank monies uh, on these networks, which can enable the users to transfer value between them, irrespective of which bank you you start with. Um, in terms of in terms of banks, they are uh, benefiting from the existence of digital assets um, in the form of a tokenized deposit or tokenized money. Um, they're able to use that in um, in in conjunction with cash, but as a replacement for cash, as as a digital asset replacement for cash. And what that means is, on the wholesale side, banks who have settlement between them, uh, large value transfers happen uh, you know, in almost real time. That can be used uh, to fund uh, the liabilities between them. Um, and what that means eventually is um, freeing up cash that the bank needs to hold. Uh, to be able to be used for lending and payments and, and you know, pushing through for their customers and, and into the system. So it frees up a lot of liquidity um, and it simplifies settlement between different types of banks on the wholesale side because you can swap an asset very easily um, between them, a wholesale digital asset, for example, and then eventually that can be redeemed for cash as a central bank deposit if, if they need to. On, on the retail side, What's really exciting for banks is this is a new payment instrument. So if you look at money today, it, it, it is quite limiting because the architecture of money is quite binary. It, it's, it's a buy and a sell, it's a push or a pull. And that's the most it can do. Um, with a tokenized money, with, with a tokenized deposit or, or tokenized liability, money automatically has uh, the ability to be programmable and logic can be applied to money. So you can ask it to do things uh, which traditional money just can't do. Um, and that means in, in, in real sense, businesses and consumers can really simplify and add uh, you know, steps for money to, to take until they're happy with a, an end result in terms of a transaction or a settlement or, or completing um, you know, a house purchase, for example. So a, a good example of that is if you're um, a buyer and you're, you're looking to procure a large service from uh, a vendor of some sort. Um, the vendor is, is, is there to deliver whatever you're contracting. You're not, there's a lot of counterparty risk. So you're not clear on how well they can deliver that service until, until the end. On the vendor side, um, they're taking on a contract with, with the clients. They're not sure if the clients can firstly pay uh, or during the life cycle of, of, of a project, Will they exist? Um, is there going to be some sort of uh, issue with with payment and, and and receiving what what you know is contractually owed? So to to manage that counterparty risk between these parties, you can use programmable money for 
the buyer to um, basically digitally escrow the, the funds. Um, and, and that means, uh, you know, they're good for the money and, and they can pay for the services once they're complete. And then it, it's an incentive for the supplier to deliver really good service and make sure the client is happy because what will happen next is a third party can come in into this transaction, verify that whatever the service or the good that was purchased is in accordance to the contract. It's been, you know, delivered to code. It, it, it meets all the requirements um, and, and it's independently assessed. And once that's done, they will sign off that this money can be released and then automatically the money can, can you know, be sent to, to the actual vendor. So it makes the supplier's job easier because uh, they know they can get paid and it makes the buyer's job easier because they know that it can be independently verified according to what's been contractually agreed. So that's just one step that you're doing that's different to, to today's transactions, but it's an important step because it removes a lot of friction, uh, a lot of counterparty risk, a lot of uncertainty, and then it makes sure that participants uh, are delivering according to the rules and it's independently checked. So it's it's a great new type of use case that you can't do today with uh, without a lot of complexity, without, without a lot of third parties. And you see it as a significant advance upon e-money? Um, yes, and, and e-money, um, you know, it, it exists digitally. It's it's a, a dollar and a pound and a euro exist in your bank account as as digits, and, and they, they are um, in, in its nature digital. But it's the transacting and the executing of e-money that, that we have limitations with today. So, so we're not easily able to complete a complex business workflow or a process with current forms of money. And that's why we have a lot of checks and balances in, in the transaction. We, we need you know, independent auditors to verify things. We need third parties to reconcile accounts on both ends to make sure things balance from an accounting perspective. And then the time that it takes to do this and the cost it takes to do this is huge for, for organizations. And what this new form of money does is it removes that complexity and applies uh, better risk mitigation by by managing counterparty risk. Like it, it's more, it's a much more flexible instrument, isn't it? Because the problem, I suppose, with e-money is this money has to sit there, be segregated, can't go anywhere. The bank can't make a return on it, whereas with the stablecoin model, they can. So it kind of makes commercial sense for them as well, does it not? Yes, and you know, by having idle deposits of of commercial bank money being tokenized and and utilized in a new form, it really creates a lot of liquidity in, in the system. So it opens up a lot of potential for innovation and growth, and, and it really manages the risk to the system better because you're, you're, you're really understanding the velocity of money and, and the transactional use of money in real time because you can see this uh, you know, according to, to a blockchain ledger, for example. And have you seen evidence that the regulators are up to speed with the implications of uh, tokenized deposits, tokenized liabilities. I'm not quite sure what I'm asking here, but I'm thinking of things like what happens to deposit insurance if a bank in effect sells some of its liabilities through the use through the issue of a stable coin? Um, I, I think they have and and they've really gone back to uh, economics and and basically the letter of the law and and uh, you know we know 
central banks have been looking at this for years because uh, you know CBDCs have, have been ongoing for, for you know almost ten years today. Um, but what we're seeing is they're they're treating it as a as an equivalent of cash and and a, and a new form of a payment instrument which represents cash. So all the same rules apply, all the same regulation applies in in terms of what a liability is, how much cash can be in the system, and and what is the acceptance of cash and and a digital form of cash has to have the same um, acceptance as as a physical cash. It, it can't be refused because just because it's digital. So we've seen central banks go back to uh, law for hundreds of years old uh, to to apply this thinking, and and it's still valid today. When I look at the regulations being put in place across all the major financial jurisdictions, two things stand out. One is that algorithmic stablecoins have been completely anathematized. The other is that bank issuers of stablecoins are are privileged to a varying degrees. My question is, what does that mean for non-bank issuers? They, at the moment, appear to be outside the regulatory perimeter in this less reputable um, area, yet if we if we think of the two biggest um, stable coins that have been used in the cryptocurrency and DeFi markets in recent years and played a very important role in in trading, um, I'm referring here to Tether and to the and to the uh, USDC issued by 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 Circle. Do you do you have a sense yet of how they are going to be regulated? Do you expect them to bite the bullet and apply for banking licenses, or are they going to be put into some other type of Category. Do you have any sense of how regulators are thinking about them? Um, yes, and, and and we're seeing the first steps of, of that regulation um, in terms of enforcement coming in. So what you know what we see happen quite often is there's a there's a very um there's a very rapid uh reaction from, from users and consumers and businesses, and that's a flight to safety. So when you see something that's risky. Uh, it's it's human nature to to either run away or, or uh, fight or flight, uh, and what we're seeing um, is is institutional money that that's been put into the system, um, moving to more regulated uh, safety in 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 a way, and um, you know in in the sense of uh, an unregistered, uh, privately issued stablecoin. Uh, Eventually, that won't be a trusted means of currency, and what consumers, institutions, businesses, users would migrate to is something that they know is safe, that they know is is backed and issued by a bank. And and if something happens, uh, there are guarantees and consumer protection, you know, insurance for one thing built in, um, and and they're able to recover their money. And and I think recent events have shown. Um, especially with things in, in in the media such as Celsius, if you don't own um, the keys to your money, it's not your money. Um, and and people have lost uh, you know, savings and, and personal money on, on these things. Um, whereas if an issue happens with the bank, you know that the regulator can enforce and you will, in most cases, if, if, if it's fraudulent or, or accidental, in some cases, get your money back. Um, so... What, what people would um, would migrate to is uh, a, a bank issued trusted um, equivalent uh, money, uh, and that could be a, a commercial stable coin. It could be a tokenized deposits, tokenized liabilities, or a central bank digital currency, and they would use that for the new type of payment instruments, which is quite 
quite a novel and innovative way to to uh, use money that's fit for you know the 21st century. I'd like to pick up a, a point you made earlier about how you expect this future to be characterized by banks issuing their own forms of, of programmable money. Now, banks have, of course, always issued their own forms of money. If we go back a couple of hundred years, bank liabilities became the main form of, particularly of, of, of paper money. But of course, since we've had central banks, the bank money has been in, available only in a kind of generic form as, as commercial bank uh, money. It's been layered on top of uh, central bank money. So it's all been a kind of fungible set of, of uh, fungible sets of, of national fiat currencies. Now, if we are entering a future of the type you've described, where banks are issuing their own forms of money, these these stable coins, which may be programmed in in different in different ways, um, is there a risk here of localization? And you've explained how making these networks on which these bank currencies are issued become interoperable but is there a risk here of some kind of localization or balkanization of the of the monetary system or of money is getting trapped uh, i'm not sure it's necessarily a bad thing but money getting trapped in in particular geographical areas do you see that as a as a potential problem or are all these forms of money going to remain fully fungible um these forms of of money will continue to operate in the system as as cash does today so it is redeemed and accepted anywhere um and the, the the eventual migration to a digital form of programmable money uh it doesn't mean that there would be 20 different types of pounds you know a pound will be a pound if it's digital or cash or e-money it, it's still a pound um that's issued by the central bank um what commercial banks can do is uh, take a form of um, money and use it within their client base and 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 their perimeter in a way, but that money is not allowed. It it, it won't be allowed to only be limited to be used on uh, ATMs that are only issued by that bank. Um, you know, point of sale systems that are only linked to 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 that bank's merchant system, um, or you know, accounts that are only opened with that one bank. That, that creates uh, silos and that, that's not what regulators want. Regulators need a free-flowing financial system that's uh, interoperable uh, and redeemable by any form of money that's issued on it. Um, so we're just going to see uh, a, an evolution into programmable smart money, um, but it can be used in any system, uh, in any form across the financial system. And the exciting thing is, by having smart money and programmable money, we're not going to be limiting bank accounts to be only used domestically within that financial system. So we have the opportunity of allowing um, risk, you know, risk-free, um, seamless uh, acceptance of your bank account almost anywhere in the world, um, without worrying about large FX fees. Um, you know, maybe uh, credit card debt, for example, can, can be reduced because you, you're doing bank to bank transactions cross borders in the same way that you are as you would in your own jurisdiction. I'm glad you brought up that cross border cross currency point, because it, it, it occurs to me that 
although the regulators in all the major jurisdictions are, are going down a common path uh, in terms of how they plan to regulate these stablecoins, uh, they've also all been equally enthusiastic about the possibility of stablecoins doing exactly what you've just described, making those cross-border payments cheaper, faster, more accessible, uh, and indeed the costs of doing them the more transparent. Do you worry, though, that that regulatory consensus might not hold and might not even be advantageous? In other words, some of these jurisdictions may start to get concerned about that and impose tougher regulations on stablecoins, while others might want to be go for more liberal regulations and say, we'll get this sort of regulatory arbitrage emerging in stable coins and a kind of race to the bottom in terms of the assets that back these uh, these stable coins what's your what's your feeling on the balance of advantage between a common regulatory approach across the major currencies and major jurisdictions versus a bit of regulatory experimentation between jurisdictions otherwise a bit of localization in regulation might throw some grit into the machine into the flows that might be a good thing as well as a bad thing where do you think the balance of advantage lies between local regulation and global regulation? I think regulators have to balance um, what's right for their jurisdiction and, and domestically for, for their uh, citizens and, and for their domestic banks. But they also have to balance what is right for the country globally and, and, and its presence in, in the wider global market. Um, and you know what what we see is is really an alignment of regulation in slightly various forms within different regulators um and and they're most likely saying the same thing but just regulated in a slightly different way so mm. you know customer fund ring fencing um uh, you know investment protection consumer protection all, all the things that they're building in but they're they're also encouraging innovation because innovation means uh, better competition better choice for, for consumers and businesses, lower fees um, and, 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 and more growth potentially. Um, so we saw a, a very good example of this, of, of open banking, when, when it was introduced by governments, it really was led to allow consumers and businesses to have access to, the, to their own data. It shouldn't be the bank's data. It's your transaction, your, your history. You should be able to, to know and own your own data. Um, and by regulating open banking it forced all banks to to act and they had a deadline to act but it also surprisingly led to a lot of innovation by having that overlay of open banking um, enabled uh, for, for the for the banking system um, and that led to a lot of innovation from fintechs um, a lot of uh, you know kyc innovation that was happening uh, looking at transaction history trends all these wallets that managed and you know, uh, assessed your your spending patterns and how you can save better and all these offers. So it, it flourished. You know, the the the, e the ecosystem flourished by thinking globally. Um, you know, others in other jurisdictions started kind of mimicking the UK and and doing the same thing with open banking and just calling it different things. But that led to a real global effort of uh, consumer innovation and payment innovation by having access to to the data that you know consumers should have access to. What we can see with, with this is um, regulators will balance what's in the best interest of their citizens and, and domestically in their jurisdiction and what else they can do to make that jurisdiction 
uh, on par with the rest of the world in, in terms of regulation and what they can do from an innovation perspective to differentiate, to attract more investment, to attract more innovation and hopefully, you know, resulting in, in a growth economy. Um, so it's yet to be seen. I, I think, um, you know, once once we have um, the, the the capabilities of, of tokenized money in, in the financial system, uh, there's a whole lot more products and innovation that will occur that we just don't know yet. Your point about central banks, regulators needing to make sure that their own jurisdiction is regulated appropriately is extremely well made. But when I look at the the regulations which are being published in the in the sphere of stablecoins, I do detect that they that, that that all these central banks are thinking globally in at least one way, and it's a it's an expression of of concern, almost of fear. Uh, after all, if we look back, what really woke them up to the threat of stablecoins was Facebook's uh, announced decision to create this global stablecoin called Libra. Later, be- became known as as DM. That that drew this reaction out of the regulations. I detect in a lot of the regulations which are being published, that fear hasn't entirely gone away. There is a concern that a non-bank global stablecoin might start, or even a bank stablecoin might start to get traction, and that will reduce the control of the central banks, not just at the national level, but possibly in terms of global monetary conditions as well. Do you think the central banks are right to to keep that fear, if you like, in mind as they regulate the the evolution of the stablecoin marketplace? Uh, One of the main concerns of of central banks is managing uh, the resilience and the risk in the system. Um, And if you look at the history of how they've looked at crypto, it was always too small to to worry about. Um, And they let the market evolve just took an observatory view of the market to understand where it's heading. And then once it became big enough that that it was seen as a potential risk to the system, um, and and you look at what happened with uh, FTX again, Celsius, Voyager, uh, there were all Lehman moments within the financial system. So there was a, a, a resilience and a systemic risk of contagion to what the central bank is mission, its mission is to, to protect, you know, protect the resilience of the financial system. So they've had to react the way um, they they have so far. And that's because uh, it, it became too big uh, and, and too much of a risk to, to the rest of the system. So from, from their perspective, I think what they're doing is, is in a controlled fashion, um, taking uh, small bits of, uh, uh, enforcement uh, to stabilize uh, and regulate the market the way it should be, but then also legitimize what the technology can do um, when it's issued and and used with the regulated institutions. So they're not banning it uh, in in the sense that they're, they're not um, you know concerns that uh, someone would do what a central bank does. Uh, I don't think. By, by all accounts and, and by by law, it's not enabled or, or capable of, of doing that. Um, what they're doing is um, kind of embedding the, the features of, of this new type of um, money and, and new type of uh, programmable smart money into the existing system. And, and that just means uh, a migration to 
uh, a safe, the safety of the regulated environment, and and that's what that's what's happening today. Do you think the risk I alluded to a moment ago of a race to the bottom on collateral quality is a real concern as stable coins evolve? Banks start to issue in the latter day equivalent of Lehman Brothers commercial paper. Is that a is that a risk we should be? Um, I, I don't see banks issuing against um, commercial money or, or risky uh, collateral. Uh, they won't be permitted to um, with, with the same way money is uh, issued today. Um, and, I th and I think that you know, the, this transition into programmable money is going to be led by um, collateralizing against real world cash backed by the central bank if it's a liability or deposit it, it, it's the same um so we won't see risky <clears throat> risky backings um of of these new types and new instruments uh, of money um but we'll see uh, a, a digital evolution of you know e-money into programmable smart money mm -hmm. so banks are not going to compete on on collateral equality uh, uh, lowering collateral quality what, how are they going to differentiate themselves from each other? You mentioned a number of times programmability, uh, obviously, and, and perhaps you could talk a little bit more about what you think, how banks will use the ability to program money to make their money competitive with the money issued by other banks. Yeah, it's a good, good point. If, if you look at open banking, the underlying offering is the same. Every bank has the same open banking overlay to uh, meet what regulation and, and the requirements are. Um, but where they're differentiating is different types of products and services that use that overlay that fit their customers best. Um, and, and if you think about programmable money, some banks may issue, um, let's just say in, in the example that was given, um, the potential to settle um, invoices quicker by, by offering a discount of that if you use a bank provided uh, third-party assessor in in that transaction so so they can they can do the assessment services uh, on on behalf of of that transaction between the buyer and the seller some banks can add other types of overlay services so if you're doing um, FX uh, they they can make uh, your transaction um, settle in another jurisdiction because they're a global bank and, and they could use both sides uh, in order to do that and some banks can create new types of neo bank fintech products using programmable money um, and we saw some demos recently in in this space where um, you know parent child accounts can be created using this types of money and it's it's conditional payments it's programmable money where the parent releases the funds only if the child has completed a task like cleaning their room for example so offering new products that that fit their market in uh, in, in in their jurisdiction um, but these products don't exist today. So this is all new technology, new products based on programmable money. So you'd expect consumers and companies to use different banks' monies for different purposes. Is that very different from the way they use different banks for different purposes? Or is it, is it going to be a whole new world, not just a I don't know, change from what we do today, modest change from what we do today, but actually something very revolutionary is using money for different, different banks' money for different purposes, very different from using different banks for different purposes. 
I, I think so. And, um, you know, consumers, we, we, we live in a very digital world today. And the way we interact um, with any uh, platform or, or with, with any entity is, is very digitally native. So consumers' behavior and business behavior has quite has changed and evolved quite a lot since uh, you know ten years ago. Where you know we've moved from very accepted paper type of transacting to almost all digital with no human interaction, and, and you know that's where society is heading, and, and it's going to get even more digital as as we progress. So consumers need and businesses need um, the right type of money for the way they you know they live today it, it, think things are, are very different to, to the, the way they were 10 years ago so the new types of products that can be created on top of a programmable money foundation would shape how people can use the best use their money for different use cases and we're seeing that you know in in today's world some consumers um, have different types of accounts. They've got virtual cards with one bank because it's deemed safer because they don't want to carry, uh, you know, a physical card and, and have the risk of someone stealing it. Um, other other consumers uh, are using traditional banking in in a different way because it provides them the ability to do uh, foreign exchange uh, better because it it fits their requirement from a B two B perspective, for example. So consumers will no longer um, need to be banking with the one bank uh, they have choice and payment choice is, is a great way to create innovation uh, it really opens competition up and it pushes the industry to create the right products for consumer and businesses and and serve that market so we will see new forms of products new forms of money from lending and payments and savings and, and other things that can be done with programmable um, money which which can't do today um, and people will, will adopt you know different types of money and different types of banks for their particular use cases i promise to come back to the relationship between stable coins and cbdc central bank digital uh, currencies whether stable coins are going to be programmable or not they are all going to be pegged to their native currency and that native currency may possibly be available in a in a CBDC form. And an easy way to think about how that might look, a way I find easy, is to think of money in, in, in layers. So you've got all these commercial bank monies layered on top of the foundation of a central bank digital currency. Am I missing lots of advantages from a pyramidical structure like that, which we haven't had before? So we have these stable coins, they are pegged to these CBDCs. Is that going to open up whole new possibilities? Will it operate very much like the monetary pyramid does today? Um, I, th I think if you come back to the BIS paper from 2019, I think it was, it was the flower, the financial systems, the flower, uh, and I forget the right term they called it, but mm -hmm. it showed... Um, it, it showed where money fits, wholesale money, commercial money, liabilities, cash. And, and in the middle was, was the space for, for central bank money. And, and with that, you know, commercially issued um, tokenized money or tokenized deposits, mm -hmm. such as stable coins. Um, so 
they all have their place within the system and they all have different features and functions within the system. Um, on the wholesale side, I mean, the evidence is there. It, it frees up um, a lot of liquidity in cash uh, between the interbank participants and the central bank. Um, and that creates a lot of opportunity to push that money into other systems, uh, such as consumers or, or retail or, or, or otherwise. Um, and then on the retail side, um, programmable money, such as a commercial stablecoin or a CBDC, a retail CBDC, um, can be used as a form of acceptance for, for different uses. Um, so I, I don't think they, they compete. Uh, their use and functionality overlap. Um, and it's the same as the system today. I mean, you're not using a retail P2P payment to pay for a house purchase, which is done on the CHAP system because it's large value settlement. Um, and you're not using batching in, in a BACS type of system to pay um, you know, a retail payment that, that you would when, when you're buying a sandwich lunch. So they, are, they all have their uses and they all have their complementary um, features that allows them to work together to, to deliver what the, you know, the regulators and the financial system need. Um, so I think it's to be seen how, how they all fit and work together once they are actively used out there within the financial system and on various different types of use cases. I regret I'd forgotten about the flower, which is why I referred to the to the pyramid. I have one final question for you, Gilbert, and, and as a result of my failure to choose the right metaphor, this question may be a bit too linear, but what is fundamentally going on here? Do you think stablecoins are leading CBDCs or CBDCs are leading stablecoins, or are these running on parallel, sometimes overlapping tracks, but are they part of a much broader movement towards this smart, programmable money you've you've come back to again and again during this this conversation who's who's dictating the direction of the pace of progress here is it central banks or is it innovators in the commercial banking and, and non-banking sector um I, I think it's uh consumers and businesses uh are in the driving seat because the habits and uh the the different uses of money of what today's uh, very digital uh, businesses and consumers need has been shaping uh, what central banks and commercial banks need to create to meet that demand. Um, and there's been, uh, you know, good learnings from the crypto and DeFi markets. I mean, that that has been around for over 10 years and there's been uh, a lot of proof points to see what's possible. Um, and having that test bed uh, in, in such a global manner has been great for regulators and great for the industry because they, they understand what needs to happen um, for, for smart money and, and you know, commercial bank money or central bank money uh, when it's, when it's uh, deployed in, into the system because that shows what consumers and their behaviors and, and how they transact and how businesses transact globally, what they need. So it really is people shaping what they need from the financial system because we've evolved from relying on a very binary uh, format, which is buy and sell and uh, a push or a pull, to a more complicated multi-step programmable format of money. Um, that's, that's where we're heading. 
So this is demand-led, not supply-driven, right? Yes, yes. Gilbert Berry, and thanks very much for taking the time to, to talk to us. It's been a very interesting conversation. Mm -hmm.